2: My name is Av Harris, and I'll be filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby, today. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. Just a few days ago, the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office released its budget and economic outlook for the next 10 years. We're going to focus on that for today's program. Joining me to dissect and analyze the CBO baseline and what it means for both Congress and us as taxpayers is an all-star panel of Concord Coalition budget watchers. We've got Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, our Executive Director and your regular host for this program, Bob Bixby, our Chief Economist, Steve Robinson, and our National Field Director, Phil Smith. Thank you all for joining us today. Good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So we do like to play musical chairs sometimes, so you know we we get to switch around. Um, So let's get right to it. Bob, the CBO budget outlook shows some pretty serious deficit reduction happening with the federal
1: budget next year. That's good, right? It is. Uh, It is. But uh, but overall, I hate to say uh, it's not a good news report. Um, You do see the budget deficit coming down dramatically this year and then going down again next year. And so so far, so good. But the really significant point about this new updated 10 year baseline which, again, uh, assumes that there are no changes in policy. It's just CBO is saying, what would happen if nothing changes? Uh, consistent with our economic assumptions as well. So what, what we see is the deficit continues to come down uh, next year, but then begins to go back up again in 2024 and continues an upward path uh, pretty much throughout the 10 years. And uh, that's really the significant point, because what's happening is, that the budget deficit is coming down significantly now because it went up significantly. Very, It really spiked in 2020 and 2021 because of the pandemic and responses to the pandemic. So there were economic and legislative effects there. That So you, you got to sort of discount those couple of years uh, because they were an anomalies. So what's happening now is we're kind of rejoining a pattern that we had before the pandemic, which was not a good pattern. <laughs> it was one of underlying structurally rising budget deficits. Uh, And so the deficit was already high to begin with going into the pandemic. And uh, so by 2024, we start going going back up again.
2: So if you're the Biden administration and you're claiming, hey, look, we've reduced deficit spending. To you, that's a bit of a red herring, right?
1: Yeah, I mean they're taking advantage. I mean, I would do it too. If you were president, you would claim credit for something good that's happening. Oh, but it's it's you know it's something that is happening naturally because the pandemic spending is winding down and the economy is recovering. So we've we've really been getting a lot of revenue. We've been getting, and then you know, CBO is not really quite sure why we're getting so much revenue coming in. So that is why the. the, the budget deficit is look, looking good. But again, it, when I say looking good, it goes back to a quote unquote normal of a trillion dollars, right. which a few years ago we would have considered astronomical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a percentage of GDP, which is the best way to look at these things, uh, you know, you're looking at consistent budget deficits well above 5%. Uh, hitting around 6 percent within 10 years, which, again, the average over the past 50 years has been 3.5 percent. So we're talking about all this budget you know, deficit reduction is leaving us at a place that's already worse than normal.
2: <laughs> so w- when the Concord Coalition put out uh, our, our press release on the budget outlook, when it, when it came out, Um, You mentioned in that that this baseline that the CBO has just released has four major assumptions that are problematic. Now, recognizing that the CBO has to put out an outlook for the next 10 years that is based on current law, um, so it's not necessarily their fault. But can you go through those four assumptions that are problematic that we need to pay attention to?
1: Yeah. And of course, baselines are all about assumptions because they're going out 10 years and the further out you go, the more uncertain they they become, particularly in times like this. But uh, because of the scoring conventions that CBO is uh, is required to follow, they don't make predictions of what is going to happen. They just say, you know, if nothing changes, this is what we think is going to happen. So they follow current law, quote unquote. Um, and th- they follow the letter of the law. There are a lot of things going ar- going on right now which could make these already bad projections worse. So this could actually be a- an optimistic or even best-case scenario. Um, and a- among those are, you know, they don't anticipate uh, any more spending for COVID. I mean, they basically say COVID's over. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, there's probably going to be some more emergency spending on COVID. We don't know how much. But a bigger factor in that regard is the war in Ukraine. Mm. We've already spent almost $60 billion this year on uh, that conflict. And uh, national security experts are telling us it's going to be a prolonged conflict. And so, you know, that's an open question about how much are we going to be spending? You know, an extra $60 billion a year. That's a lot of money. Uh, And so another thing that uh, Tory will talk more about is that they assume that a lot of tax cuts that were enacted in 2017 are going to expire on schedule in 2025. Uh, Unlikely that that's going to happen. So that could be so the baseline assumes a uh, a gusher of revenues beyond 2025 that that may well not happen. And the other thing I'd want to mention is that uh, they uh, essentially assume a soft landing uh, that the Fed will be able to tamp down inflation without causing a recession. Uh, everybody hopes that that will happen. They hope that they can pull it off, but everybody will acknowledge that that's historically been very, very difficult to do. So the CBO, they, they don't anticipate recessions. They don't say, we think a recession is gonna happen. So, you know, you could get one. Uh, and so the the economics could not work out quite the way CBO wants, and that would have a, uh, not. Wants, but I mean, <laughs> they're projecting. Uh, so that could be an optimistic scenario as well.
2: So, since you mentioned Tori, I definitely want to turn to you now,
1: Tori. But I guess before we
2: do that, um, what's the big picture message, uh, Bob, taking a look at this, that policymakers, lawmakers, taxpayers need to understand? What's the takeaway from this CBO baseline that's been released?
1: Well, it really reveals the the extent to which we're on an unsustainable track that we've been, you know, uh, it it isn't COVID. (laughs) It's not the war in Ukraine. It's that we have an underlying baseline that is unsustainable. Spending is going to grow faster than revenues uh, under current law. And so unless we take policy actions, unless we specifically try to mitigate that trend, uh, stop it, reverse it, whatever, our budget deficits and debt will be on an unsustainable track and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the consequences are worse for future generations. So really, it's the the message for policymakers is it is up to us to change the laws now to produce a better effect later.
2: OK, thanks for that. Um, I want to turn to you, Tory, um, to Look at uh, some of the changes in uh, revenue uh, spending uh, that this that this baseline has has uh, uncovered. So there are some pretty major increases in revenue, correct?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, it was amazing to, to see this, this report. Um, there was a huge write-up, upward revision in the revenue forecast since last July. Um, they added uh about 3.3 trillion in revenues to the baseline over the next 10 years. So in general revenues they expect to get a, a 3.3 trillion more uh under this baseline than they did under last July's baseline. And part of that was just alone uh, they added about 450 billion in revenues to the forecast for the current year. I mean that's like a 10% uh uh uh, portion of the of, of uh, so we're getting ten percent more you know revenues than we, than we would normally expect at this at this time of the year or in this in this fiscal year so um, you know there there are uh, people are sort of scratching their heads and trying to figure out you know what's going on with the the revenue uh, side of the federal budget I think uh, part of it is economic growth obviously um, people are lots of people are working and lots of people are earning lots of money um, part of it is inflation. Um, we see wages going up really fast. And when wages go up, payroll taxes and income tax revenues go up. Um, the stock market was going up for a while. And so you seeing mm-hmm. a lot in capital gains, maybe not so much in the last month or two. Uh, right. That's part of it. But then I think there also there were some legislative changes that they made uh, during covid uh, that let uh businesses delay their their tax payments to the federal government. And so some of those payments are now being made. So you've seen a shift in revenue collections from one fiscal year into the into the other. And I think there's some of that going on as well. So yeah, big huge revenue surprise. Um, so good news. Um, but I think one of the concerning aspects of that is despite the fact that we had this huge write-up in the revenue baseline, um, we had an even bigger re- uh, write-up in the the spending baseline. Uh, so the, the new forecast from the congressional budget Ad office you know based on legislation that we've already enacted uh, they they added up almost six trillion dollars in new spending to the baseline uh, between discretionary and, and, and mandatory spending so we got this big huge revenue bump uh, now and in and, and the, the the future years but we've already spent it and more some by adding so much additional spending to the baseline so um, not 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 a good thing when you add the two together the net sum is we've got two and a half trillion dollars more in deficits this baseline than we did with last July's baseline
2: yeah and 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 picking up on that uh, I was I was uh, on my Twitter feed yesterday and I saw some interesting commentary from at Fiat slugs which uh, <laughs> l- listeners should know that's Tory's feed and that's and and you say right and uh, I'm sorry yes your, your Twitter Twitter handle um, you say and I quote, The sleeping giant buried in the CBO baseline is the rapid growth in interest. Government has gotten away with two decades of low rates, but we've amassed so much debt that the future costs will soar. Can you expand on that a little bit? What are you referring to?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when federal government issues debt, we have to pay interest on that debt. And for two decades now, the interest rates that we've been paying on our debt have been very, very low. Uh, but between you know the 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 Great Recession uh, and the COVID pandemic, um, we've uh, and a couple of wars and a couple of tax cuts that we've all financed with debt. You roll that up, we've amassed a huge amount of debt, and that interest those interest payments are now starting to accumulate. And when you take a look at the current baseline from the Congressional Budget Office, net interest nearly triples over the next decade. It triples, Um, you know, net interest will exceed the federal share of Medicare, excuse me, Medicaid by 2025. And it will exceed the entire defense budget by 2030. And the thing about that money, A, is it's not something that goes to anything productive. We're not building roads and bridges with it. We're not, you know, providing uh, healthcare with it. Um, But it's also, it's not something that we can rewrite. Okay, when, when uh, entitlement programs, for example, get out of whack, Congress can step in and rewrite those entitlement programs by changing the laws, okay? So if they wanted, for example, to raise the retirement age for social security, to help it be more solvent, they could do that. Okay, but they can't rewrite the debt contracts. Okay, the treasury securities that we've issued to finance our spending, you know, those contracts are held by other individuals, whether they're foreigners or, you know, here in, you know, people in the United States, um, you know, uh, retirement funds, et cetera, the government can't rewrite those contracts just because the interest is getting too expensive. Okay, We have to pay it. It is an obligation that is immovable. Um, and that's what I think is really, really concerning about net interest.
2: One more question for you, Tori, and then I want to turn to Steve. But um, one, one of the things that uh, people have been talking about for a long time, budget watchers, is that Uh, some of the trust funds right, that that are are supposed to be supported by congressional action and appropriations uh, uh, will be in trouble in the coming years. Now we've gotten to this budget window where some of the trust funds uh, are going to have trouble within the next 10 years. Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Sure. So if people who've been following the Concord Coalition know that, that we're constantly talking about solvency in, in some of these trust funds when it comes to Medicare, Social Security, transportation, et cetera. And we've been sounding the alarm for a long time that a lot of these are not funded at the level of which we have promised benefits. Okay. Case in point, Highway Trust Fund. Okay. According to the current baseline, that's going to run out of money in 2027. The Medicare Part A trust fund which pays for senior citizens on Medicare their hospital bills okay uh, that's going to run out of money uh, by 2030. Um, the Social Security retirement trust fund okay so this is the retirement portion of Social Security um, that's just outside the budget window but it looks like that trust fund is going to exhaust itself you know by by 2033 so all of these programs all these problems that we've been warning about and we've known this for a while. And it's not just like a year or two. We've known this for five years, six years, seven years. We've known that these programs were not funded adequately to sustain them in perpetuity. Well, those days of reckoning are now showing up inside the budget window. And in particular, in this budget window, the Highway Trust Fund and the Medicare Trust Fund.
2: Steve, I want to ask you probably have time for this one question and then we we can talk more in our next segment. But I want to take a look at some of the economic numbers in the CBO baseline. They project um, that surging inflation will flatten out over the next couple of years, but interest rates will continue to rise at the same time. Does that sound right to you?
0: The inflation assumptions in this in this uh, set of projections is actually kind of interesting. Um, after inflation peaked over 8% earlier this year, uh, they're assuming that on average, inflation will be about 6% this year. It'll fall to 4% roughly next year, and then uh, down to 2% by uh, by 2024, uh, just a little over 2%. And so, you know, they're clearly the, the CBO is expecting the Fed to successfully engineer a reversal of, of what we have seen as you know, historically high inflation. Um whether that comes to pass is, is uh, <laughs> remains to be seen. But uh, yeah, you also point out that obviously interest rates are connected to inflation. And the reason for that connection is that investors who are loaning money, uh, when they get repaid, they would expect to uh, get repaid in dollars that are worth what they originally loaned. And if you loan out money and uh, the interest rate's 2%, inflation rate is 4%, uh, you just lost the difference. You lost the 2% difference. And so, you know, historically, although we've had unprecedented low, in fact, adjusted for inflation, we've had negative interest rates for the last several years, Uh, you know, no one expects that that is a sustainable long-term, you know, situation. And so CBO, I believe, correctly is assuming that yes, at some point in the in the near future, interest rates will have to rise to provide a positive, you know, after inflation rate of return. And so their baseline reflects that that in fact interest rates will go up and you'll see a you know a real, for example, the 10-year treasuries right now are you know losing money because they're at 2% and inflation is at you know six. But they assume over time, inflation will come down to two and, and and interest rates will go up to three. And so therefore, you know, they'll they'll actually have a positive return. And, and that is generally the historical norm is you have a positive return on interest rates.
2: It's almost like a clash, right? Because the Fed's got to increase those interest rates to try to fight inflation. But at the same time, inter- increasing those interest rates creates uh, a, a bigger number in terms of the net interest payments that... The federal government has to pay on, on the debt.
0: As Tori was mentioning earlier, you know, interest is the cost of spending, and and it, if you borrow money and you spend it, uh, just like when you borrow money for a car or borrow money for a house, uh, eventually you have to repay it. And you know, people who lend you money want to get repaid, uh, and it's the same thing with the federal government. When we borrow money from you know, the, the rest of the world, or we borrow money from, uh, you know, pension funds and insurance companies, uh, the, the pensioners and the insurance policy holders would like to hope that their policies will pay off. And if the government doesn't meet its commitments, um, which includes the interest cost, uh, you know, you run into the situation of a, of a default and, you know, were the federal government to default, and I, I'm not saying that it will or, you know, that, that that's, that's certainly no one's expectation, but, you know, if you run into that situation, you're talking about interest rates going up, a country that's on the verge of default is facing a significant increase in interest rates. I mean, you look at what happened in Greece uh, back a few years ago, you know, when, when their financial situation was, was in a in, you know, desperate situation, um, their interest rates shot up, you know, multiple times. And you know that's that's been the history of of countries that threaten default as their interest costs go up, which even makes it more more likely that you have a default, which is why you never want to put yourself in that situation.
2: And we'll we'll talk more about that in our next segment. Uh, for now, we have to take a short break. You are listening to Facing the Future. I'm Concord Coalition Communications Director. Av harris sitting in for in the host chair today uh, we've got bob bixby tori gorman steve robinson and we'll also have phil smith all dissecting the latest 10-year budget and economic outlook newly released by the congressional budget office but we'll much more after a short break stay with us welcome back to facing the future this is av harris filling in as host today for bob bixby who is actually one of our guests uh, today we are taking a look at the newly released ten-year budget and economic outlook put out by the Congressional Budget Office. We've also got Concord Coalition policy director Tori Gorman, chief economist Steve Robinson, and our national field director Phil Smith all joining us today. So, Bob, I have one practical question uh, for you uh, that maybe you could you could help me and, and some of our listeners understand. So, one of the findings. In the CBO budget outlook was that the ratio of our national debt to gross domestic product, which is now at about 100%, it's about even, that ratio will dip briefly to 96% next year before then climbing back up to 110% by the end of the decade. And By the way, that uh, according to the CBO, that, that will, would be a best case scenario. It could rise up to about 120% by that time. Um, so does the fact that there will be a short dip in the debt to GDP ratio give Congress any breathing room, for instance, uh, uh, for as far as uh, maybe needing to reset the debt limit? Because that always seems to be a dangerous game of chicken when that comes up.
1: Well, probably not. Uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of hope there. CBO did address that in the report. They, the, the debt limit is uh, three point uh, thirty one point four trillion right now. And uh, CBO is saying that uh, they're going to reach that limit sometime in fiscal year 2023. Now, keep in mind that the fiscal year 2023 actually begins in October 2022. So uh, really, that's not very comforting that there's not that much uh, time left. And, uh, you know, they're going to have to deal with that debt limit again. And keep in mind that even if the debt to GDP ratio is coming down, there's still a heck of a lot of new debt being added. And that is the, the, the debt limit. One of its flaws, actually, is that it's not tied to the debt to GDP ratio. It's, it's just a, in dollar terms. Mm-hmm. So uh, even if the debt to GDP ratio is coming down, the dollars, the dollars in debt are still uh, going up. And so, yeah, this this uh, they're going to have to deal with a debt limit again, probably sooner than they would like.
2: What are some of the other uh, facts about the debt that were brought out in this uh, budget and economic outlook that you think are important for us to pay attention to?
1: Well, I mean, there are some I I mean, I think that, you know, you got to look at that debt to GDP ratio that you mentioned. That's that's the most important thing. And and think about that over the 10 year budget window, when it rises to projected rise to 110 percent of GDP, that's the highest it's ever been. That includes World War II. (laughs) I mean, it's 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 big Uh, and uh, and you have to say, well, You know, uh, it's it's the debt to GDP ratio goes up in times of war and recession and pandemics even. So we've had that kind of stuff. But what's important about this baseline to recognize is that uh, that stuff goes away, assuming, you know, on the optimistic assumptions here that we're we're done pretty much done with the pandemic and that, you know, the economy is growing again and and there isn't going to be a recession. And yet, the underlying policies that we have in place—that uh, you know, the underlying spending and tax policies—produce the highest debt that we've ever had, and and going up further. That's really that's that that should be alarming to people.
2: <laughs> so, uh, Steve, I want to ask you. I wonder what your thoughts uh, as as Bob talks about the debt and the rising debt. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on how all of this might impact the economy. So, we've got you know, interest rates going up, we've got net interest as a larger and larger share of the budget, as Tori explained earlier. Um, and we've got this enormous gap between the revenues that are coming in and the spending that's going out. Um, you know, this is something the Concord Coalition has been warning about for the last 30 years. Are we finally here at the moment where this is really going to start to impact uh, our, our economy, their job growth, wage growth, things like that?
0: Well, it's, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, the, the federal debt, people, people sort of think about the federal debt as just being one big number, you know, it's it's just debt. But in fact, um, you know, the, the debt actually can be divided up because part of it is held by the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve uses debt to, to conduct monetary policy. Uh, part of the debt is held by the rest of the world, and then Part of the the debt is held by U.S. investors, insurance companies, pension funds, those sorts of things. And so when you think about the debt, you really can divide it up into roughly equal, very roughly equal thirds. A third is held by the Fed. A third is held by the rest of the world. A third is held by U.S. investors. And so when you look at the economic effect of the debt, um, you have to sort of look at who's holding the debt. You know, how much are... You know, foreign investors providing us with the funds to finance our government. Uh, how much is the Federal Reserve buying, uh, and that you know, and how much is is you know being held by by U.S. investors, and each of those have different effects. And, and normally, economists think about the effect of the debt in terms of crowding out. And crowding out is sort of this this euphemistic term that says that you know, if the government borrows money somebody else can't borrow the money. there's only so many dollars at any point in time. and if the, the government borrows part of the money, then there's less money to go around for everybody else. And so the idea is that, that government borrowing crowds out other borrowing and therefore there's less money for you know home buyers to make you know have mortgages or businesses to take out loans or companies to sell stocks and bonds. And so the notion is is that the, the government debt, does in fact crowd out private investment. And you know, the standard economic theory says that you know, economic growth is a function of the supply of labor, how many workers there are, how many hours do they work. And the other factor of economic growth is, is capital investment. How much are businesses investing in plant and equipment and factories and computers and all of those sorts of things. And so when you have less investment in the private sector, you have a smaller economy, you have less income, you have less, less growth. And so, yes, there is a real concern that as the debt grows, uh, it crowds out private investment and shrinks the, the rest of the economy relative to what it would otherwise be. But again, it's important to distinguish the debt held by the public, the debt held by the rest of the world, and the debt held by the Federal Reserve, because I think each of those have a slightly different effect in terms of, of economic growth.
2: So I want to turn to you, Tori. You've got some experience working in Congress, uh, specifically on budgetary matters. And I'm wondering, in the big picture, what impact, if any, do you think that this latest CBO baseline will have in Congress? Do you think they'll just kind of ignore it and do, do their thing as usual? Or do you think that some of the things you pointed out with some of the trust funds being at risk in the next 10 years may... You know, contribute to potentially moving the needle, maybe finding some new sources of revenue, uh, or maybe some structural reforms of some of those programs. What do you think?
3: Uh, if the past is prologue, Congress will ignore it and keep marching forward until a crisis presents itself. I mean, that's the one thing that 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 car- Congress, especially one that's as divided as ours, um, they really only respond to crises when they, and that's about the only time when they can rally together and find some common ground for solutions and. You know, right now, uh, there aren't really any action forcing events in front of them uh, today. Right. But as we were talking about earlier in the show, you know, at some point early next year in 2023, um, Congress is going to bump up against or Treasury is going to bump up against the debt limit again. Um, And that's going to be an action action forcing event, I believe, that's going to require a conversation um, both with the American people, but also among lawmakers themselves, given you know, who's in control. I mean, are are Republicans going to control the House and the Senate? Are they going to control just the House? Or, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen in in the November elections? I mean, I think people have a good guess, but, you know, wait till we get there and see what happens. But, you know, if if, if the Republicans are in control of at least one chamber, I am almost 100 percent sure that there are going to be some they're going to extract some concessions from democrats uh in in exchange for their votes to raise the debt limit and the question is is what are those those concessions. Are they going to be something that addresses the, the topic that we're talking about today? Or is it going to be something on social policy? Um, you know, I'm not entirely sure, but I would think that the debt limit would be a time to talk about having a discussion about reintroducing some fiscal control measures.
2: De- I was just going to ask you about that, um, uh, because we, we've we seen this movie before in, in the not-too-distant uh, past, where There was uh, some kind of Budget Control Act, and then there was this uh, sequestration, which is these automatic uh, spending of constraints on spending. I mean, do you think that's something that they might try to, uh, if the Republicans take over control of one or or both houses, that that's something they might try to do again with a Democratic president?
3: I think Congress hated the Budget Control Act and sequestration. I mean, it's like, you know, everybody talks about, it's like taking a sledgehammer into surgery instead of a scalpel, right? So I don't see another iteration of the Budget Control Act, especially not one that's just focused on discretionary spending, like the way that one was. I mean, there was a mandatory piece to that sequester, but it was really, really small. Um, No, I I see something uh, potentially uh, a little bigger, um, maybe a little bit more uh, you know, comprehensive in terms of of looking at the overall budget. Maybe uh, establishing uh, 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 deficit targets as a percentage of GDP, for example. Um, you know, put ourselves on a trajectory to get down to deficits as a you know three percent of GDP, for example. Um, you know, that's definitely going to take a lot of time. Um, but when you start targeting deficits. Um, it gives you a little bit more flexibility to work on both the revenue and the spending side. And when you establish a target as a percentage of GDP, it takes into the account that the economy does ebb and flow. Um, so I, that's what I would be looking towards. And then you've got things out there like uh, Senator Mitt Romney has this thing called the Trust Act, uh, which would create these special committees to take a look at some of our programs that are funded with, with federal trust funds. Um, I could see something like that, the Trust Act as being part of, of a, a negotiated package to raise the debt limit. So um, yeah, we'll see, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, But sometimes I feel like, you know, Charlie Brown with Lucy in the football.
2: (laughs) You're listening to Facing the Future. We have to take a short break. Uh, My name is Av Harris. I'm filling in for your usual host, Bob Bixby. Bob's one of our guests today, as well as Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson. And we'll also be hearing from Phil Smith in the next segment. We're taking a look at the latest 10-year budget and economic outlook released just a few days ago by the Congressional Budget Office. We'll be right back after these words. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Av Harris filling in as host for Bob Bixby, who's actually joining us as a guest today, analyzing the latest CBO, 10-Year Budget and Economic Outlook, along with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and our National Field Director Phil Smith. Phil, we haven't heard from you yet uh, during this program. Uh, We've been kind of crunching the numbers, but I want to ask you if you can kind of take it uh, to a big picture level because we know that every time there's an election, and obviously this is a midterm election year, the number one issue is always the economy. And people look this year at at rising gas prices and rising uh, costs for other consumer goods. And and that motivates people. But the economy is related to what's going on with the federal budget. It's just that these federal budget issues that we've been talking about they, it's it's tricky to kind of move people on them. How do you get people to move or how do you move people
4: um, looking at some of the data that we've been talking about? I'm coming to you from Georgia today where, you know, the governor has gotten rid of our gas tax at uh, the state level to try to bring down, you know, the price of gas because people are feeling it. People are feeling it at the pumps. They're feeling it at the grocery store. They're feeling it, God forbid, if you got to buy a house right now. Um, you're feeling it in so many different ways. Um, I purchased a used car last year that's now worth more than what I paid for it, despite the fact that it has 15,000 more miles on it and it's a year older. So there's all sorts of strange things happening in this undulating terrain that Americans find themselves in right now. Uh, but because they're feeling it, you know, they, they turn to groups like the Concord Coalition to try to make sense of like this report we're talking about, the CBO report. There's so many things in here that they, they want to look at, but they're feeling it. They're feeling something right now. And one of the things that we were talking about last night, I was at a Braves game down here in Atlanta. We were talking about the economy. And one of the things that, that came up at some point, you know, if you if you don't like what you're feeling now, you ain't felt nothing yet, you know, in terms of the things that we've got coming down the pike. And it's happening sooner than it used to be. Like when the Concord Coalition was founded 30 years ago, we used to talk about, um, you know, the, when, when the Social Credit Trust Fund was going to be in trouble in the 2020s or the 2030s. And now the future is here. You know, that was, that was so far out in the future. Spaceships were going to be landing on the lawn. And now all of a sudden, Social Security, for example, uh, you know, we have uh, the, the trust fund uh, runs out of money uh, just beyond our 10-year window now. So the future is now here. People are feeling it. And I can remember even a year ago, people were like, oh, what is this inflation warning? We're not going to have inflation. You know, we haven't had inflation in 40 years. Well, now, finally, people who are 50-something years old and younger are feeling what inflation feels like, and they don't like it. And that's our future if we don't fix these problems. So that's what your message is when you
2: talk to people out in the field. Does it take a long time, or does it take a lot of effort to kind of connect? Well, the part of the reason why we're having some of these uh, problems, economic problems, is that we we have uh, our our budget's out of control. We're spending way more money than we're taking in, and you know, and it, it
4: it has impacts. It has impacts, you know, in your in your in your pocketbook. It does. They feel it. I think Americans are oftentimes confused by different economic data that they see or they're experiencing. I mean, just last week I was speaking to the Siouxland Chamber of Commerce and I was making the point that we don't just have a spending problem, but we also have a revenue problem. But then we came out with a report this week that revenues are coming in at strong levels. So now people think, oh, well, is that problem solved? No, that problem's not solved because if you look at the long-term, we still have a revenue problem, right? So I think oftentimes people are confused, but that's why it's so, so critical. the for the mission of the concord coalition to be successful to educate americans about these issues because we're in the midst of the silly season right now and what i mean by that is it's midterm elections right we just had elections this week here in georgia and it's really hard to translate all this into bumper sticker talk but people do know in their heart that running large deficits over large over over a long period of time is wrong they don't always know exactly why but we've got focus group data and polling data that clearly shows people know deep in their in their bones that this is not right uh, but it takes a little explaining some time to figure out exactly why
2: so I want to turn to you Tori uh, we have a few minutes left but I'm curious uh, when you look at what Congress may or may not do over the next few months right before the end of the year uh, taking into account the fact that what Phil just said that we've got these midterm elections coming and that's that 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 impacts everything that Congress does or doesn't do. Um, the idea of reconciliation to try to get through, you know, some kind of domestic agenda uh, for the Biden administration um, is that dead at this point? Can we can we uh, you know call 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 the uh, time of death for the patient?
3: <laughs> I I think the president's uh, broader agenda, Build Back Better agenda, is dead. But I think there are some policies. Um, that are hanging out there that are going to drive a smaller, more narrow, more targeted reconciliation package across the finish line uh, before the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. And one of those policies were, was the uh, expanded premium support for the Affordable Care Act program. So as, as part of COVID relief, one of the things that that the Biden administration did was provide more premium support, more financial support for individuals and households to go purchase insurance in the private markets through the exchanges, Obamacare, okay? Um, that premium support, uh, and 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 by doing so allowed a lot more people to get health insurance who did not have health insurance before. And it's private market health insurance. They're not on Medicaid, they're not on Medicare. You know this is private market health insurance. Well, that program of providing premium support is expiring at the end of this year, and two things are happening. Number one, if it's not extended, that if that financial support is not extended, it's going to kick a whole bunch of people off of, of their private health insurance. Second, those notices from the health insurance companies are going to start arriving in people's mailboxes in October, like right before the November elections. And if you want to bring your voters to the poll, <laughs> you don't want those notices going out, right? You want people to, to know and understand that they still have their health insurance. And so I think the fear of that, that financial support going away and the fear of those notices from health insurance companies telling these people, I'm sorry, but you know your, your premiums are going up, but your financial support from the federal government is going away. Um, You combine those two things together, and that's going to provide a huge uh, impetus for Democrats to to pull together and at least put together a very narrow, uh, very targeted reconciliation package that would, for example, use tax increases on the wealthy or tax increases on corporations in order to make that premium support program permanent or at least extend it for a fair amount of time. Um, So that that's probably why and probably the biggest reason why I don't think reconciliation, a reconciliation bill, you know, which 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 will allow Democrats to pass legislation on a party line basis without Republican support. It's why I think reconciliation still has some life left in it.
2: So interestingly enough, um, that might be something that could get the support of West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin who this week uh, was in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum, and he had an exchange with a Republican senator, Roger Wicker from uh, Mississippi, where Manchin was was pretty harshly criticizing the 2017 uh, tax cuts and saying they were really regressive and he would like to see some kind of tax reform. He's also talked about doing some kind of you know, deficit um, mitigation. So I guess, Bob, I want to give you, uh, the, you know, the last question. If they do what, what Tori has just described, if they, if they do some kind of higher corporate taxes right, to fund some of these premium supports for uh, the Affordable Care Act, there's an example of something that might make sense from a public policy point of view, might make sense in terms of uh, stabilizing and you know, growing the economy but how are they going to pay for it? Right. That, that's, that's the, the problem we wrestle with. There's these good, good policy things, but if, but if it costs more money, you know, we turn to, to, to do it by debt, paying for it with debt. Right.
1: Well, I think if they, if they're raising corporate taxes to pay for something, they're at least paying for that. But the, uh, the, the key is that we're, we're, already in such a, a hole that I think any reconciliation package that they pass now ought to have, must have really, I think, uh, a deficit reduction component to it. In fact, I doubt that one would pass without a deficit reduction component to it. So uh, that's a big deal. The, uh, and the, and so it should be a, a net gain for the budget. So if you want to, uh, you know, that doesn't mean you have to stop all sorts of policymaking. It just means that Things that you want to do, you have to have a sound system of paying for it. And Congress at some point in the administration really, really have to start making some hard choices on this. The the time for easy deficit reduction from the pandemic has come to an end and we're on this unsustainable course. So it's not just pay for, it's pay for plus. You got to, you got to pay for plus some deficit reduction.
2: But, what could be, I guess we have, we have about a minute left, but are there any realistic options
4: um, that, uh, uh, that could uh, reduce the
1: difference? Uh, the answer is no, okay. in the sense that, um, but, but then you have to say, okay, well, that leads to an unsustainable future. So we have to start looking at the implausible options. You, you can't just say, well, that will never work because politically you look at everything and the first answer is that will never work. That's why we're already on an unsustainable course. So when I was on the Rivlin-Dominici Deficit Reduction Task Force several years ago, meeting at the same time as Simpson-Bowles, we sort of had a rule that we, we wouldn't rule out anything because it was politically infeasible. Because then you just get to a point where we are now, where everybody's protecting their little fiefdoms and you're on an unsustainable course. So... Yeah. Political feasibility. Um, everything looks bad on a, on a first blush, anything that's serious. And so we have to all get beyond that. And everybody say we're going to put everything on the table and try to negotiate.
2: Well, that's a tall order and uh, we're going to have to leave it there. And hopefully somebody in Congress will be listening to what you just told them to do, Bob. Um, but thank you so much for, for joining us this week, uh, Bob and Tori and Steve and Phil. Uh, We've been looking at the Congressional Budget Office, latest 10-year budget outlook that was just released a few days ago. This is Facing the Future. My name is Av Harris. I've been filling in uh, as a host. You can catch this program and others online at ConcordCoalition.org. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back for another edition of Facing the Future next week.